Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Mission, Vision, and Values. And the name of the sermon is called, Who We Are, Changed Lives, Steward Your Distress. Pastor David will be preaching from 2 Chronicles 33, 1-20. Let's join Pastor David now. We are uh, continuing through this series of unpacking the mission, vision, and values of Village Church. And today we're looking at uh, our value of changed lives. And to guide our time and to shape our thoughts, I ask that you'd uh, meet me in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I know what some of you are thinking. Fear not, it's on page 452. If you're using the Bible and the chair in front of you, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Let me read portions of it, first, the first and second verse, and then verse 20 of this passage of Scripture, Second Chronicles, chapter 33. God's Word says this, Manasseh, when he was 12 years old, uh, uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's verses 1 and 2. Now jump down to verse 20 of Second Chronicles 33. So Manasseh slept or passed away or died. He, another word for saying that, Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon his son reigned in his place. This passage of scripture that we're going to look at today, it opens in brokenness, in a sober picture of the evil uh, that Manasseh was leading his people toward. It opens with brokenness and evil, but ends with a measure of, of honor. That Manasseh, uh, passed when he passed away, uh, Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house. This this small glimpse, this small measure of honor. So if it opens in brokenness and evil, but ends with honor, then we ask the question, well, then what happened in between? And that's what we're going to look at today as we go through this passage. So let me pray for our time in God's Word today. Father, we come before you grateful, just having all these beautiful truths ringing in our minds from what we have just sung. Lord, that you... When we call you answer, Lord, that you, your name is great, you delight, Lord, to show mercy, you're a saving God, a merciful God. So, Father, as we turn to your word, as we think on this passage, as we reflect on the broader idea of how you change and transform our lives, Lord, we ask that it would happen even today. Your word is living, it's active, it's It's a surgical blade, Lord, that cuts out of us what you want to root out and heals in us what you want to make whole. So, Father, we ask that as we reflect on this passage, we would experience what we're reflecting on, Lord, that we would today experience a measure of life transformation, genuine change, a genuine sense that you have met with us and we cannot help but grow be transformed because of it. So, Father, we open up our hearts to that. 
We open up our hearts to your word, and we ask that you would move. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Manasseh, it's very clear in the first two verses, Manasseh was leading God's people toward evil, toward wrongdoing. He was leading the charge and taking them down a dark path, a hard path, a path that would lead toward destruction and undoing and, and chaos. And let me read again, actually, the first 10 verses. It's a larger chunk, so follow along with me. But look, look at what this portion of Scripture says. Verse 1 again. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. It's a long tenure, a long a season of, of, of leadership that Manasseh was leading. Verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord uh, had driven out before the people of Israel. What happened? What did he do? Verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the, the Baals and made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, that's the sun and the moon and stars, and served them. He's constructing idols and leading in worship of other gods. Verse 5. Or sorry, verse 4. Built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. In verse 5, he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two of the courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune teller and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. The very place that God said, I will reside here, my name will be remembered, is the very place that Manasseh is creating carved images and idols. Verse 8, God continues to say, I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them. All the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh, verse 9, led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Manasseh. The Lord spoke to him and to his people, but they paid no attention. And we read, as we just get through 10 verses of Scripture, a pretty sobering, a pretty weighty, a pretty dark trajectory uh, that Manasseh was leading God's people on and toward and down this path. And as we uh, read through this passage, we start to see that uh, pretty much everything that God had commanded not to do, Manasseh was doing. Pretty much everywhere that God said, don't lead this way, Manasseh was leading in that way. And we see uh, this incredible reversal of the relationship of the covenant that God has put on his people, Israel, all throughout the Old Testament. We see in this relationship a pattern of grace that all the way from Genesis to Revelation, God's relationship with us has always been one of grace. Uh, that 
this pattern of grace is essentially God saying to us, I have saved you, I've redeemed you, I've forgiven you, I've shown my mercy to you, and therefore, as a result, as a response to that, follow me, obey me, listen to my teachings and do them and live them out in your life. And we can see this even, this winks back all the way uh, to uh, in the book of Exodus, the, the Ten Commandments. Listen on. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. Chapter 20, Exodus 20, the verse that precedes the Ten Commandments. Listen to this. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Shorthand, I saved you. I saved you by sheer and utter grace. And then the Ten Commandments. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. This is the pattern of grace. This is the pattern of God's relationship with his people. Always God's initiative of showing grace to us, our response, motivated not from fear but from love, motivated not from anxiety but gratitude, that we would respond to his grace with obedience and hearing his word and doing it in our lives. This is the relationship that God has established. And Manasseh has pretty much done the complete opposite. <laughs> that by the time you get to verse 10, after reading those first 10 verses, the question is less, what did Manasseh do? When it says he, he, uh, that he did, in verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the time you get to verse 10, you almost say, what, what evil did he not do? And uh, for those who want to uh, study this further, write down Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. There's a list of, of essentially commands, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14. It's a list of commands. It's a portion of Scripture where God says, in light of this covenant, in light of this relationship, make sure that you don't do this or don't do that. And it's almost a copy and paste that if you then read this passage, these verses, it's pretty much exactly is what Manasseh is doing, exactly what God commanded him not to do. And this is a sobering list. I mean, there are some heavy, weighty, Things that Manasseh has done and leading toward. And by the time you get to verse 9, when it says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. By saying more evil, it winks back up to verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. And what the writer here is doing, what God's word is doing, it's subtle, and it's a, um, in some ways, forecasting, and it's alluding to, but clear nonetheless, that if Manasseh is leading this way, the writer is winking at, then perhaps the same fate that the nations faced is exactly what Manasseh deserves. That the way that he was leading, if that warranted God's holy and purifying and justice poured out on the nations, and then Manasseh is doing that exact same thing, the reader, at, by the time we get to verse 10, especially when it says the Lord spoke to Manasseh, he spoke to him, he talked to him, he told him, and God spoke to his people, but they paid no attention. By verse 10, the first readers would have said, uh-oh, this is not leading down a bright path. This is leading down a path that ultimately will end up in some version of exile. Because if, if the pattern of grace is God saying, I saved you, therefore respond to me from a motive of love and gratitude and obedience, then the pattern of exile is that when God's people 
perpetually, constantly, over time, unrepentantly, willingly walk in ongoing patterns of sin and evil and brokenness and wrongdoing, after a while there will be a season of redemptive correction. Redemptive correction. That's the pattern of exile, that God capture the, the beauty of the complexity of God's character in this, that he loves his children, he loves his people so much that he would even bring them through a season of redemptive correction to hopefully, ultimately, depending on how we respond, right, bring his children back to himself. And all of the signals are pointing in that direction, that Manasseh is leading God's people toward evil, the same evil that caused God to drive out the nations is the same path that Manasseh is leading. All the signals, all the signs of a coming exile are, 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 are forecasted. And that's essentially exactly what happens to Manasseh, that as he led God's people toward evil, God led Manasseh on his own personal journey of exile. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse 11, and then the first part of verse 12. Therefore, therefore, verse 11, in light of all that has happened, in light of all these uh, 10 verses, in light of all these years, Manasseh reigned 55 years. We don't know how old he would have been in chronology in terms of when this happened in verse 11. In light of all this wrongdoing, in light of all this evil, in light of also verse 10, the Lord speaking to them, but they did not listen. Therefore, therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commander, the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze. Undoubtedly, to, this would have incredibly humbled the person who was being taken captive. Hooks either in his nose or in his cheek, bound with chains. This is the leader. This is the ruler of, of God's people, completely humbled to the ground. Captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains and bronze and brought him to Babylon, and when he was in distress, and let me push pause there, hold, hold that sentence there. We see all through these first ten verses, God, oh, the story unfolding in such a way that God is leading Manasseh on his own personal journey of exile, and we see a moment where he is in real distress, distress, distress the rock-bottom moment of our lives. Uh, the moment of our lives where the wheels fell off the wagon actually two miles ago, kind of a moment, where the bottom of the basket completely falls out. Distress. Sometimes moments of distress, I think, on one side of the continuum, sometimes moments of distress can be self-inflicted. Sometimes the, the, what led us to a moment of distress was, was completely, the ball was in our court the whole time. On the other side of the continuum, sometimes moments of distress are 100% outside of our control. For circumstances or reasons that you have no control over, you get caught up in this uh, a terrible, unfortunate circumstance, and then you find yourself at rock bottom, a moment of distress. we got both sides of the continuum. How often do we get a, sometimes a measure of both? I know I have. Moments where I look back and I realize, oh, how am I here? What brought me here? And I, and I see a, perhaps a measure of both, a humbling way of saying, okay, Lord, you know, I, I contributed to me getting to this low point. Maybe a portion of in this and that and this happened, this person, that circumstance, you know, well, that contributed. I didn't really have control of that, but here I am, distress. 
And all of us, uh, for different reasons, have known and seen and felt what distress, real distress, may feel like. Let me read. Um, let me read what another has said. This this is what this is what rock bottom looks like, sounds like, feels like. Um, Tulian Tavijan. Some of you might know that name. Uh, Tulian Tavijan was a prominent pastor whose marriage and ministry was essentially undone due to infidelity. And Tavijan shares in 2018, so it's a number of years ago, and he's actually reflecting back on a few years prior. Tavijan shares in 2018, this is what he says, listen to this. I'm 45 years old now and my life is broken in ways now that I, it, that it was never for the first 42 years of my life. Two things I had come to believe were secure forever were my marriage and my career. I lost both during the late spring, early summer of 2015 due to my own sin. Tavijan goes on to say, my own selfishness. I was unfaithful to my wife, he says. And therefore I deserved to lose both my marriage and the ministry God had given me. And I lost it all very publicly. Tavijan goes on to say that with the loss of his marriage and ministry, he loses a thousand other losses loss of friendships, the loss of peace and security on my three kids' faces, the loss of purpose, the loss of credibility, the loss of confidence in God's goodness, the loss of financial stability, the loss of hope, the loss of joy, the loss of opportunity, the loss of life as I knew it. My friends, that's what distress looks like. That's what it sounds like. That's what it feels like. And I know I'm speaking to a whole host of variety of lived experiences, even in this room. However you're engaging in this message. For some of you, you've walked that journey before. Some of you, maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't experienced what Tavijan has experienced, but in different ways, in different degrees, in different circumstances, we all know what distress feels like. Maybe it was a, a, a sudden turn of, of your health, that you were chugging along and things were great, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, news from the physician and your life was upended, distress. Maybe for some of you it was a loss of, of career, that uh, things really turned upside down in a horrible way and you were caught up in it and it, things that you had spent years of your life building on have now crumbled before you and it took you to a place either mentally or emotionally that you did not know you could go. That's distress. Maybe there was a relationship in your life that, that soured and, and broke and severed. Uh, perhaps um, a global pandemic might count as a distress-causing moment in the lives of many, many, many people. Loss of life or loss of, of other things that are attached to the circumstances that we find ourselves in this season. Maybe distress for you uh, came in, in the form of a betrayal Maybe someone you knew, someone you loved, someone that you had uh, shared with. The relationship turned. And things broke. Distress. Whatever the form, whatever the degree, we all know to a measure what that rock bottom feels like. We read through these first ten verses of Manasseh, uh, Manasseh's journey, Second Chronicles 33, 1-10. We listen to testimonies like Tavijan, and we realize that we cannot cast the first stone, can we? 
Because what we're reading here in these 10 verses, what we're hearing in this testimony is what we all have experienced to a certain degree in a variety of different circumstances. And my friends, I'm going to say something, maybe shocking, I don't know. Um, in those moments of distress, don't waste them. Don't waste your moment of distress. Because as much, as much as appropriately and fittingly we pray in those moments, Lord, would you please deliver me from this rock bottom? That's an okay prayer to prayer. Hello, I've, I've prayed that. We've prayed that. But just as much as that is a good prayer to pray, my friends, distress is not something just to get out of. It's something to steward. Because in those moments of rock bottom in your life, in our lives, we have an option. And we have an option to either harden our hearts before God and turn away from Him, or we have an option to soften our hearts before God and turn toward Him. When we hit rock bottom, we, we can clench our fists tighter and get more angry and more frustrated and more mad at God, and we can, we can, we can turn from Him. And there are examples all throughout Scripture, and there are examples all throughout our lived experiences of people that we know, people that we've shed tears over and prayed for and longed that they would return, and their fist is getting tighter and tighter and tighter because perhaps of a moment of distress. That's one option that we can take. Or, on the other side, instead of clenching our fists, softening them, opening up our hearts to God letting that moment of stress take its course, that it might not destroy us, but soften us. We might not turn our back to God, but turn toward Him and run to Him in those moments. Steward, steward. Don't waste your moments of distress. Look how Manasseh navigates this moment. I pushed pause in verse 12. Let me backtrack actually to verse 11 just to read this again. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. This is his own personal journey of exile. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, my friends, good decision. Good decision. That all that Manasseh had done, and it, it's an impressive list. And as I was studying for this passage, one commentator was, was, was making note in passing that, you know, I don't, I don't know if we could rank them. I don't know if we could consider, is there a worst leader of all Old Testament times? I don't know. Maybe, and maybe if there was, Manasseh would be vying for first position. We have an impressive list of all the brokenness that he is facing, but do you see, do you see the turn of events that is starting to unfold? That in all of that brokenness, Manasseh, in his moment of distress, turns to the Lord in repentance, turns to the Lord in confession, humbles himself greatly before God, and we see that though Manasseh was leading God's people toward evil, and though God led Manasseh into a personal exile, in some ways because God led Manasseh to a personal exile, we see that God restores repentant Manasseh. 
that no matter how impressive the list of the first 10 verses, no matter how long your list and my list, do you realize that God's forgiveness and His mercy is longer? No matter how weighty and, and, and sobering and, and dark the list of wrongdoings that we have done, you and I have done, Manasseh has done, it cannot outweigh God's mercy and forgiveness and grace. There's no darkness that His light cannot shine in. There is no brokenness that His restorative power cannot mend and heal. Even if it takes until His second coming when it's fully made right and restored, my friends, do you realize our evil cannot outsprint God's mercy and grace? Manasseh humbles himself, entreats the Lord's favor, and God restores. He restores repentant and humble Manasseh. Look at verse 13. Manasseh prayed to him. He prayed to God. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought Manasseh again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then he knew. This God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, still just, he knew that this Lord that he had led God's people away from in incredible forms and ways of evil and wrongdoing and brokenness is the same God that forgives and restores and heals and mends. He restores repentant Manasseh. And repentance, sometimes I think when we think about repentance and confession, it puts a feeling and an image in our mind um, that's scary. And let me try to repaint that image if I can. I think re repentance and confession is like cutting rust out of a car or like uh, rooting a weed out of your garden or out of the ground. Or those in the, our medical professions, it, it, it's like rooting out a cavity. It's like cutting out cancer in our bodies that the more thorough the confession, the more thorough the repentance, the more thorough the cleansing. With those who have a green thumb who are listening to this message, you know this well. A dandelion, a rogue dandelion, evil dandelion really, that pops up in your garden or in your yard, how do you get rid of it? You just take a lawnmower to it? Just take a little scissors to it? Do you pick it? Give it to your mom? Put it in a nice jar? You get all the way down to that root. And I know some of you with green thumbs. You get the backhoe out if you see a dandelion in that yard. That thing's coming out. The more thorough the dig, the more thorough the cleansing, which is uncomfortable at first, right? Because in confession, in repentance, what we're doing is we're, open our, we're opening ourselves up before God. And I think confession and repentance can be scary not because God is stingy with mercy, not because, because God is stingy with grace, but because the challenge of, of us wrestling through either guilt or shame or embarrassment keeps us closed. Or, 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 or it might open us up for a partial confession, but not a full confession. My friends, do you see how that image turns that on its head? That when we come in confession, it, it's, it's a door that we open. 
And behind that door, we think, I think oftentimes, we think, if I'm going to come and confess to God and I'm going to open this door of my heart to Him, we think that what awaits us is a snarling dog. But my friends, rather what awaits us is a father with loving arms, wide open, ready to forgive. We sang that earlier today. Who delights to show his mercy. That the more we, the more thorough the confession, the more thorough the healing, the deeper that God's restorative grace and power can go. And we see this pattern of of confession that emerges, that as we open up to him, the deeper that his healing can go. Confession is like a, like a, a balloon of God's mercy and grace waiting to pop, but my friends, you've got to pop it. You've got to poke it with that needle, and that needle is confession and repentance coming to him, saying, God, you, you know this impressive list of verses 1 through 10. You know this, Lord, in my heart. And I come to confess it to you. I come to bring it to you. And when we do that, we unleash not God's fury, but his grace, his mercy, his kindness. And there's a whole bunch of verses I could go to in the Bible to illustrate that, but let me just stay in Second Chronicles 7.14. Some of you know this passage by memory. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. Do you see the image of the loving heart of God the Father? That he is, is, is showing us this window into his heart that in a profound and mysterious way he can only restore and he can only restore to the degree that we repent and confess. I use the image uh, first service. Again, if, if confession is a door, and we might be on the other side of that door wondering, can I open this door of confession either again or for the first time? And when you do that, when you come to him in repentance and you push open that door, you know what God is not going to say to you? You again? Or it's about time. Rather, you'll see a, a, a heart of a father with tears of love in his eyes whom the Spirit and the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, have been interceding for. Did you know that? They pray for you. God the Spirit and God the Son are praying for you. When you go through that door of confession and repentance, you'll find other people in your life have been praying for you that you might walk through this to find real, true, genuine restoration. And God does not say it's about time. We see him sitting there. and we re Maybe we ask him, how long have you, how long have you been sitting here? How long have you been waiting? How long were you intending to wait for me to push through this door of confession and repentance? He says, as long as it takes. I'm here waiting as long as it takes. Waiting, yearning, longing to, to heal our land, to heal your heart, to heal your life. And he can only do that to the extent that you confess and repent and come to him. So let me ask it this way, my friends. What... What restoration might you be missing out on by not coming to him? Or what restoration, what depth of restoration might you be missing out on 
by not fully repenting or coming to him. It changes the metaphor, doesn't it? It changes confession and repentance from something scary, something uh, wondering if I, if I walk through that door and see God's face, is he going to be snarling? Is he going to be mad? He's not snarling. He's not mad. He's longing that you'd come through it. And it changes the metaphor to something scary, to something beautiful, healing, hopeful. Are there pockets of your life that are yet, yet to experience full restoration? My friends, you can experience that. And it starts with that first step of coming to God, opening up yourself before Him, asking, well, entreating the favor of the Lord, humbling ourselves greatly before the God of our fathers. And God starts this restoration process. God restores repentant Manasseh, and then we see Manasseh, though he started this portion of Scripture, leading God's people toward evil, he now leads God's people down this path of restoration. Look at verses 14 to 17. Afterward, verse 14, afterward, after he confessed, after he repented, after he entreated the favor of the Lord, afterward, verse 14, he built an outer wall of the city of David in the valley in the, uh, for the entrance of the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a great height and he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of, in Judah. He's restoring the physical city. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord. He's throwing away all these uh, 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 idols and the altars that he had built in the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. He's cleaning house. He restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. He's, he's reestablishing a right worship to God. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. Verse 20, so Manasseh slept with his fathers. When he passed away, when he died, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house. It opened with brokenness and evil, it ends in a measure of honor. And as Manasseh leads down this path of restoration, we see in this journey, we see in our journey, restoration, the full restoration that we experience, it's not a light switch, is it? That we just flip on and off, restored. It's a path that we follow, it's a journey that we take, it's small step after small step after small step. Now let me unpack that a little bit. When we come to God and confess to Him, that spiritual soul restoration with God is instant, immediate. Living out that restoration on the horizontal plane of everyday lived relationships, marriages, siblings, families, uh, the everyday walk of living out this Christian life, that journey of restoration is, is a journey. It's a path. And one that we can walk, one that God's mercy carries us down. And when we come in confession, when we come to God, we can know that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When you come to confess to God, you don't have to wonder, how is He going to respond? Is He going to respond in anger and wrath? Or is He going to respond in mercy and, my, and forgiveness? My friends, the heart of our God is that He always responds when we confess to Him in mercy and forgiveness and repentance and restoration. And sometimes when we confess to God, there are things in our life that might be fitting and appropriate, even necessary, to turn and confess to others. 
maybe family member, maybe spouse, maybe friend, maybe sibling, maybe someone in your small group. And when we turn to others in confession, know that God is walking with you through that as well. It can be scary, isn't it? Can it be? To open up, and we, that's why we want to open up to... Uh, we want to be wise in how we navigate that journey. It's a journey that even Jesus walks with us down every step of the way. So if this path, this passage, opens an evil and ends at the measure of honor, what happened between? What happened between? Grace happened in between. And we see from this passage that between your brokenness and God's restoration is the door of repentance. We all have found ourselves in broken moments, every single one of us. Between where you are in that moment and God's restoration on the other side of the door is that door of repentance and confession. Won't you go through it? Won't you open it? Won't you come to your loving God who yearns and longs for you to walk through that door, who delights to show you mercy, who delights to forgive, and my friends, that will change your life. And as on this Sunday, as we're thinking about this value that we have as, as a church community, that this value in some ways describes not only who we are, but who we want to continually cultivate ourselves to be. It's a value that doesn't just sh sit on the shelf. It's a value that we want to continue to stretch and live into and live out through all of our ministries. Do you see what this means? Every aspect of what we do here at Village... Sunday services, small groups, ministries, outreach, all that we do, ordinary stuff, sending emails, scheduling meetings, uh, uh, minister, all that we do, we are not chasing after behavior tweaks. We're not chasing after just kind of socialization. We're chasing after life change. We want to be a community in which we see and experience genuine, real, transformative power of the gospel kind of experiences in people's lives. And I think if there's an example of, of that, we have it in Manasseh. I don't know if you could find a rock bottom further than his, but at the same time, I don't know if you can find a message of grace that can lift him higher than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, that's the kind of life change that we want to be about. That's the kind of life change that we want to see continually here at Village Church. That's the kind of church that I would want to join. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, may this be a message. Even in the message, Lord, we're trying to illustrate life change, but Lord, even in this message, change us, even now. And Father, I, I pray for everyone who can hear my voice. Lord, I know that when we start to talk about topics like these, we cannot help but fill our minds with names and faces of people that we know and love who are on this journey. Lord, we ourselves come to mind. And Lord, we ask, we pray for those who are at that moment, maybe right now. Lord, would you soften their hearts? Would you have them soften their hearts? May they respond to you. May they turn to you and experience grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. 
Father, may this not just be a message, may this not just be a passage, but may this shape and steward a value that makes up who we are. And by your grace, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.